I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. After days of wrangling, Washington has muddled through varied responses to the country's economic crisis with varied degrees of legislative success. But the path to consensus hasn't been easy with questions remaining as to how to navigate the still unknown parameters of the health threat posed by the coronavirus, as well as the complex operations of the global financial system. Through it all, banks haven't been the only ones facing enormous economic strain and pressures. Fintechs across the country have as well, and many are trying to adopt new strategies to safeguard and protect their business. Which got me thinking, how important or not, is size in surviving the economic slowdown. And can firms and customers transition regulatorily and technologically in time to protect themselves? To help me think through the issues, I'm delighted to welcome Jonah Crane to the show. Jonah is a partner at the Claros Group, an investment and advisory firm. And he's also worked at some of the highest levels of government including a stint as the Treasury Department's Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Financial Stability Oversight Council, and as a policy advisor to New York Senator Chuck Schumer, where he worked on the Dodd-Frank Act, the Jobs Act, and the Superstorm Sandy Relief legislation. He is, quite literally, someone who understands what it means when markets are working under pressure. Jonah, thanks so much for making it onto the show. Chris, thank you for having me. So we've seen a tremendous amount of economic turmoil in the last several weeks, and I know that you've been able to see uh, many of the repercussions play out across the fintech ecosystem uh, from your perch over at Claros. What are you seeing in terms of the vulnerability of financial technology firms in the midst of all the chaos? Yeah, so obviously the, the crisis itself and even the, uh, the repercussions of the crisis for uh, the financial system are much, much broader than fintech. Um, but in many ways, uh, fintech companies are on the, on the front lines of this crisis, um, sort of the, the tip of the spear, so to speak. Um, and I think that's, uh, that, that's true for a variety of reasons. Um, for one, uh, you know, a lot of fintechs came of age as lenders, in particular lenders uh, providing, you know, unsecured loans to consumers and loans to small businesses. So you really are seeing uh, the, the fintech lenders focused on the small business space, sort of bearing the, the, the brunt of the early days of this crisis. You know, in, in part, that's also because they have uh, sort of fragile business models, right? They, they run on an originate-to-distribute model. Um, so they have to keep making loans and keep selling loans to banks, to hedge funds, or into the capital markets through securitization in order to uh, to generate revenue. So if that hamster wheel stops, it's quite dangerous for them. And you've seen stock prices of a couple of publicly traded uh, lending companies uh, plummet quite a bit in recent weeks. So they they really are on the front lines. I think uh, fintech companies with more diversified business models, including you know companies like PayPal or Stripe or Square, who also do payments in addition to lending. Uh, may have a better shot, but I don't. I don't want to overstate um, uh, the strength provided by uh, those other revenue sources. I, Square was out yesterday with an announcement that they're 
uh, payment processing volume is down uh, something like 20, 25% year over year over just the last couple of weeks, which is um, down drastically relative to the pace of growth in the last few months. So I think um, from payments to lending, we're seeing um, a, a big hit to many fintech business models. And on the consumer side, you know, the, the flip side of the, the, the decline in payment processing revenues is uh, the fact that a lot of consumer fintechs were built on interchange as a business model. And so if, if consumers are, are simply swiping their cards less, that means less interchange revenue. And, you know, there's, there's, there's one impact that I don't know I've thought a lot through, but um, there are a bunch of fintech, uh, outstanding fintech acquisitions, you know, Visa buying Plaid, uh, to it buying Credit Karma and so forth. And it's not clear to me whether, uh, you know, whether those deals are going to be able to close or not, whether they included a so-called material adverse change clause in the agreements and, and whether some buyers may be, may be rethinking the, those acquisitions. Perhaps, perhaps some lessons for your law students. Uh. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, there, there, have, there have certainly been more than a number of uh, discussions of force majeure clauses, and, and maybe that can indeed be a, a topic for, for, for a future podcast even. But you know, w- one of the really interesting things that you've just pointed out is that the, the the kinds of challenges facing fintechs, it's it's one that that goes to the core of many of the business models of many of these fintech firms, really regardless of their size, and 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 many of them are going to have to sort of rethink exactly how they're going to generate revenue and and profit, uh, even where they've scaled up, uh, where you have such a large, broad slowdown in the economy. But they're not the only ones doing some rethinking. And I'm really curious, given your experience at the Treasury Department, um, there, there's also a rethinking very publicly about the robustness of financial regulation, especially for, for short-term lending. And this, I think, is itself kind of surprising since we thought these problems had been solved uh, after the financial crisis in 2008. Um are there lessons then from 2008 in what we're seeing in today's repo and money market funds? And uh, are these lessons useful from a regulatory perspective for how we should be thinking about fintech firms? Yeah, I mean, I think um, obviously this is, this is quite a different crisis in certain ways than, than the one we faced in 2008. In 2008, the crisis started with you know, kind of a, a cardiac arrest moment or a sudden stop in, um, relatively sudden stop in the financial sector. Um, even that played out over a period of, you know, call it a year plus um, from the summer of 2008 into the summer of 2007 into the fall of 2008 uh, before we really sort of hit the hit the bottom of the crisis. So that was that was that was really slow motion compared to to this particular crisis. And this crisis is also starting. You know, with a, a sort of sudden stop or cardiac arrest-like moment in the in the real economy, um, it's almost more like a natural disaster, but on a national or even global scale, uh, more so than than the kinds of um, impact we saw, uh, you know, flow from the financial sector into the broader economy last time. Um, in terms of the policy response, as you mentioned, I think um, you know, look, the the good news is we have a pretty deep toolkit um, uh, coming out of the last crisis that the Fed, in particular, can deploy. Um, to stabilize principally financial markets, um, which may not be the cause of this crisis, but it can help uh, uh, the programs the Fed is launching can help things from getting worse. Um, and look, the Fed has been able to roll out those programs. They've done in three weeks, you know, what it took them uh, something like three years to roll out in the last crisis. So I think it's it's good that we have the, the sort of playbook at the ready 
In terms of what lessons can be drawn from the financial system, um, I think it's a little bit too early to tell. I think the fact that the Fed is providing a lot of liquidity support to a variety of different markets um, uh, is, you know, partly just their their job, and that's uh, that's to be expected. I do I do think there are, um, you know, some lessons that uh, it looks like we're learning all over again. I've I've spoken publicly already about money market funds and the fact that, uh, you know, you're you're seeing some of the exact same problems crop up this time around, um, even though they were a, a known problem and a known issue and. And don't appear to have, those those issues don't appear to have been resolved by the reforms that were adopted since the crisis. Well, one of the really interesting dynamics that I've noticed is that there's this weird moment where, right where you're seeing these critiques of deregulation leaping onto the editorial pages of major newspapers, you're also seeing fintech firms that have been operating in an ambiguous regulatory environment looking to enter the more regulated financial system. Uh, And and this comes from online lenders to firms looking to penetrate payment services. Uh, Here you can think of just an example, firms like Lending Club and Square ultimately opting to become banks. And and this isn't happening because of regulatory suasion. Uh, it's, It's really happening as a matter of business imperative. How do you view this particular business development, and how does that play out against the backdrop of all this economic turmoil and the rethinking of regulatory priorities? Yeah, I mean, I think the way you the way you framed it, which is um, you know sort of a, a, a business strategy uh, approach, um, you know, companies trying to shore up their business models and recognizing that part of doing so may involve becoming a bank or um, you know, in many cases, uh, companies have struck various kinds of partnerships with banks. But uh, Lending Club, uh, you know, was was pursuing a bank charter at one point. Ultimately, decided to buy uh, Radius Bank. Square, as you mentioned, um, was recently approved for industrial loan company charter and for, for FDIC insurance. I think, um, obviously, the, those uh, those steps come a little bit late in this particular instance. And I think there are a lot of companies with the kinds of business model issues we alluded to a moment ago who um, probably thought they had more time to shore up their business model and are now perhaps wishing they did so. Um, but, you know, to be fair, if you go back a few years, it was a, it was a very uncertain prospect whether um, any of these companies would be able to come banks. Um, you know, new charters were not, uh, were not flying off the shelf. And um, you, you've seen some recent approvals uh, of companies, uh, Square, Barrow Money before them. Those processes took years and years and cost uh, a, a lot of money, so I think I think companies were reluctant to uh, to go down the path of trying to become a bank and and, and get their own charter um, because it was very unclear whether that was actually a, a viable a viable path. And I think uh, it's only recently uh, that people have started to think of that as a more viable path. And it's obviously not um, not going to get there in time do, to help people through the current crisis. Yeah. Do Do you think that 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 particularly in light of the current crisis and in, in light of the fact that even with, say, some of the Fed's um, rescue attempts, you know, many of those uh, rescue efforts and, and the facilities that the Fed are, are setting up are, are designed for um, financial actors that are not necessarily uh, fintech firms. Um, do you think that becoming a bank or owning a bank, uh, d- does that somehow become more attractive in a time of financial crisis, or as as you said, I mean, you know, Square in particular, you know, it it, it took years for them to ultimately get approval, and and um, 
we've heard from the FDIC that they'll be subject to even higher capital requirements than, than a normal bank. Um, does an economic slowdown make transitioning into a bank uh, an, an even less attractive option uh, for a lot of these fintech firms? Well, I think, I mean, like I said a moment ago, I don't think this, um, you know, I, I don't think you can become a bank in, in time to help you in this particular crisis. I do think, um, you know, whatever fintech firms manage to survive um, this period uh, will come out of it with, I think, a healthier appreciation for the benefits of stable funding brought by by deposits, for example. And and so I, I, I think I think this will increase interest over time among the players who survive in uh, in becoming a bank. I think it will increase um, interest on the regulatory side and uh, perhaps making that uh, a, a more viable option so that, that companies do do bring that within the banking system. But it's a good point. I don't think um, it, it was ever going to be an easy task for many of these companies. And the, the conditions imposed on Square's approval were, were in some cases quite onerous. Given the fact that a lot of this economic turmoil is really unfolding at breakneck speed, I mean, it, it's literally unfolding at the speed of the spread of the coronavirus, uh, you made the the great point that as a sort of response to that crisis, a fintech is not reasonably going to be able to sort of uh, adopt an entirely new business strategy that requires, you know, a lot of uh, regulatory uh, involvement, uh, particularly, you know, jumping into the world of, 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 of banking. Also, as, as, as you'd mentioned, and as we had said at the outset, a lot of these financial technology firms are uh, increasingly central to the funding models for small businesses that are currently under financial stress. So how would you envision uh, the, the, the challenge or the framework of, of thinking that policymakers have to go through when trying to figure out how, if at all, to provide uh, support for these uh, particular entities um, as part of their rescue, uh, sort of overall rescue strategy? I, 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 there are some reports that more than a, a few members in Congress are trying to figure out whether or not fintechs uh, should be brought into um, sort of some kind of uh, rescue or, or relief package. Is that something that is sort of part and parcel of bailout? Um, and what are the, the 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 pros and cons of sort of bringing fintechs along with all these other non-banks into the, the, the larger discussion of um, uh, federal assistance. Yeah, it's an excellent point. I think obviously the the overriding policy goal right now is to get money in the hands of small businesses as fast as possible, um, with the goal of you know helping them maintain attachment with their workforce, basically, so that things don't completely fall apart. And whenever the pressure of the virus eases up, um, you know we can get back to business as quickly as possible. But um, how to do that uh, is complicated. Uh, it's complicated in part because you know, we're just not set up to directly distribute lots of money from the federal government into the hands of uh, either consumers or businesses. On the business side, you know, it's something like a quarter or a third of truly small business loans are, are made by, um, you know, companies that we would call fintech lenders uh, these days. And so that's, that's quite a substantial portion. So I think it, it, it's important to think about ways to incorporate them into programs that have traditionally run through banks, like SBA lending programs. SBA loans are typically made by banks. And backstop, uh, you know, a portion of which is guaranteed by by the government through the SBA programs, um, and the government guarantee makes it easier to to sell those loans and, and, and find funding. 
So it would, you know, I think some of the some of the business model issues and some of the challenges that the lenders are facing, which is that funding for their for their small business loans has has come to a complete and screeching halt, um, could be eased uh, to some extent if if these lenders are given access to something like a, an SBA program. It would certainly be my hope that these lenders, which are supporting a substantial portion of of the small business community, could get access to those kinds of programs. And you know they can they can act a lot faster. Uh, they can process loans in in a matter of uh, you know really minutes or hours um, compared to the, the literal weeks that it can take um, for traditional SBA lenders. I think I remember I was working for Senator Schumer during during Hurricane Sandy, and one of the great frustrations in the wake of that disaster was how long it was taking to get uh, to get money out to people through some of the disaster relief programs um, that SBA and others were running. So I think it's absolutely critical. Speed is speed is Speed is certainly of the essence at this point, and I think that uh, fintech lenders can uh, can play an important role there. It's it's worth noting one of the Fed programs as well in this respect, the the TAL, the term asset backed securities lending facility, another of the the crisis era tools pulled off the shelf here. Um, SBA backed loans are eligible for funding through the through the Fed's TAL program, and so it could be. Um, you know, it could be quite beneficial to run the SBA loans through the fintech lenders and, and allow the loans to be sold into the Fed program. That could that could unlock a lot of the uh, liquidity problems we've seen in that in that space recently. It is interesting because fintechs are just sort of in this uh, odd space where, on the one hand, the existing regulatory regime for them remains really a work in progress. But what is clear is that many of them are under a lot of duress because their own customers are facing economic challenges. But at the same time, they carry with them several kinds of assets and capabilities on the technological end where regulators and policymakers are asking, how do you leverage that aspect of their business model in ways to get the economy back on its feet? Uh, But when you think again about the American economy as a whole, the number of people who are going to be hit and impacted by the coronavirus is enormous. And even outside of the small business space and and, and even within it, you have women, uh, people of color who are expected to be especially hard hit by the deceleration of the economy. Do, Do you have any thoughts about how fintech can be leveraged to speak to to these communities and groups in a world where they, uh, really more than others, may be more poorly equipped to operate in a digital ecosystem or to have uh, access to the technological infrastructure to secure uh, working opportunities from home? What, What kinds of policy or even market responses within the world of fintech can you uh, imagine to help speak to this situation? Yeah, I mean, I think the the problems you identify are, are you know, unfortunately, much bigger than, than fintech can solve. Um, I think uh, even in the even in the context of the current crisis, but I think there is, you know, there is a role to play. I think you know we have seen over the last several years um, uh, efforts by um, you know the fintech sector to. Uh, leverage data in a more in a more creative fashion to um, provide access to people who you know credit in particular um, people who have been shut out of the traditional uh, credit system. So I think there have been efforts to expand access that should help those communities um, over time. Uh, you know whether 
whether it's possible to scale those up uh, right now in the midst of this crisis or not, I don't know. Um, but it does seem like there's at least some potential there. You know, I think there's a really interesting example of a company that uh, I guess I would call FinTech that you know runs the, the food stamp program, the SNAP benefits through a debit card uh, that they operate. And it's made food stamp recipients uh, put them uh, much more in control of, you know, sort of managing uh, their, their their food stamp benefits and uh, being able to spend them and, and just know via an app how much was uh, how, how much was actually left on that card and so forth. And I, I think um, uh, the ability to you know run programs like that through um, a more modern technology uh, uh, interface um, over time could be could be quite helpful. You've heard some proposals to sort of leverage a, a modern version of postal banking to give everybody sort of a, an automatic digital wallet or digital bank account so that the government can more easily get money into consumers' hands. I think, I don't know if they can be scaled up uh, quick enough, but... Well, one of the one of the very interesting proposals that that you're mentioning was, and, and uh, you know, and it's it's kind of gone back and forth and and popped up, uh, and there are different congressmen on uh, uh, both sides of the aisle who've been sort of attributed with this idea of a digital dollar or digital wallet, um, and and basically the idea is an analog to sort of having the fintech lenders to help get money into the hands of uh, small business enterprises. I, I, as I understand it, that this is an idea to do the same for everyday people, right? To, to figure out a way, how do you uh, uh, literally allow individuals who are facing financial pressures to get access to uh, federal funding? Um, and, and, and I read yesterday, uh, you know, there's a, a question about if you receive a check, you know, a paper check in the mail, you know, the ability of a person to, to cash the check can be limited for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that banks themselves may not be open because of the coronavirus uh, outbreak. But, but there are lots of discussions in that, in that space. Have you seen fintech companies who are considering, you know, how do you scale up for, you know, the everyday consumer and to support that kind of potential change in the uh, infrastructure to supporting any kind of financial crisis um, assistance? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the, in the early days of this crisis, things are moving very quickly. And I think you've seen um, companies, uh, you know, try and try and be creative in, in using technology and, and partnering with other companies to, to leverage their technology capabilities to, to, to do interesting things for small businesses. I've seen um, you know, sort of platforms to buy, you know, virtual gift cards uh, from your favorite restaurants to help support them through the, through the crisis, for example. Um, but they've been small and one-offs, and, and it's impressive that they can be rolled out this quickly. I, I think in the wake of this crisis, we're going to need to do a sort of fundamental rethink about the infrastructure that we have available to um, get cash support or credit support to businesses and consumers in, uh, in, in, uh, in fast enough uh, to help in the wake of you know a crisis, a natural disaster, or a pandemic like this. Um, I think the lessons of Katrina and Sandy and um, those kinds of natural disasters and the lessons we're, we're, we're seeing this time suggest to me that we need a pretty big fundamental rethink of, of the infrastructure. And again, I'm just not I'm just not sure it's scalable in the time frame that is going to be super helpful in the context of this crisis. Um, but people are definitely working on things around the edges. Jonah, you you, you had also mentioned you know that this that this deceleration is just a, a really fundamentally. Uh, disruptive one uh, in terms of market activity, in, in, in terms of deals. 
Uh, when you look at the landscape of fintech, and uh, uh, you had you had mentioned, for example, the the, the Visa's acquisition of, of, of Plaid, um, what do you think are going to be the drivers behind? Uh, uh, you know, these deals going through? I mean, do you think it's going to be a, a question of just renegotiating the terms of the deals, of these kinds of deals? Or do you think that they may just just uh, end up not being closed altogether? Yeah, tough to know from the outside. I think, um, you know, I'd, I'd be surprised if um, in cases where, you know, perhaps we were, you know, valuations were stretched to begin with, if there's not an attempt, uh, if there's if there's room within the contract, there's not an attempt to renegotiate terms, Um you know the old the old M and A lawyer in me is is thinking along those lines, but um, uh, I think you know whether the deals will actually go through or not. I mean, I suspect a lot of these will. I suspect um, they were they were deals driven by um, sort of big you know big picture business strategy decisions that probably haven't changed as a result of the crisis. Um, um, I could be wrong since I'm not sitting inside those boardrooms, but uh, I, I I suspect that if the if the broad strategy remains in place, that um, there's an urgency to closing these deals. I mean, certainly if you're a lending club, you want to close the radius deal like yesterday. Uh, the bank <laughs> bank regulators, the bank regulators may not uh, may not facilitate that, but um, but but that's one that I think um, uh, is certainly more likely to go through. And and you know, as I indicated in, in response to some other questions, I think um, probably uh, lending club and others are, are perhaps wishing that uh, they'd done deals like that a couple of years ago. Jonah, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Best of luck. The fintech ecosystem isn't immune from the ongoing economic turmoil, and it, like other areas of the economy, will change in ways that are impossible to predict. But one thing is certain, whether fintech players will ultimately be able to assist the economy get back on the right footing will require an analysis of not only their relative strengths and weaknesses vis-a-vis legacy players in the financial system, but also how quickly regulators can bring them safely into traditional financial services and whether consumers, including the most needy, will be able to transition to a technical infrastructure capable of supporting their economic lives. And with the coronavirus changing America, both would need to be done now as opposed to later. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.